know, describing who a Christian is is not always an easy task. Uh, that is because merely an outward appearance or outward actions don't always do full justice to who a Christian is. Now, outward actions do have a place in the Christian life. They are a result of an inward change. But merely an outward action or an outward appearance is not always a helpful indication. Uh, that's why we can think of a life of a Christian as something that is both simple and complex at the same time. Uh, such a life, your life, my life as a believer, is marked by trials, and it's also marked by joys. A life is marked not only by trials, but also by joy. There are times when a Christian displays fear over faith, and there are times when he displays faith over fear. A Christian is a recipient of the blessings from God, and at the same time, he's also a recipient or he's on the receiving end of the world's envy and jealousy. You can think of the Christian life as simple in the sense that there is to be just one object of his or her faith. There's only one who deserves all what he has to offer, and that one is God. And a Christian's life is to be marked by contentment in this God. But a believer's or a Christian's life is also a complex one in the sense that with the sheer number of uh, choices and decisions he or she makes and with their growing maturity in Christ, that there are bound to be certain seasons that look different from other seasons in the believer's life. And so in that sense, a believer's life is both simple and complex at the same time. As you think of your own life, there are many significant events in the life of a believer. There are many, many significant in the life of someone who calls themselves a follower of Christ. How do we think of the Christian life? Well, a true Christian is marked by a few things. Uh, he's marked or she's marked by who, or she, who he loves. He loves the Lord and everything about the Lord, his word, his people. Not a perfect love by any means, but an evident love. A Christian is also aware of their sinfulness and lives their life with the gratitude towards God who loved them and gave himself up for them. So a Christian is not only marked by who he or she loves, but also by a humble attitude. A proud Christian is an oxymoronic concept. A true Christian is not only marked by his or her love for the Lord and also an humble attitude, but also by obedience to the one he says he loves. Not a perfect obedience, but a genuine desire to obey the Lord. Now what we have in chapter 26 is the life of a believer on display. Not in its entirety, but in a miniature form. It's one of the most difficult chapters, really, to outline. And we'll see, uh, and you probably can be a judge of how I have outlined this chapter. In this chapter, we see a believer facing trials, and we also see him obeying. Uh, we see him letting his fear of man take over his faith in God. 
but we also see him being blessed by God. And we see him at the receiving end of je the jealousy and hatred of men, but we also see him blessed in spite of his failures and sins. We also see that when his sins are pleasing, when his ways rather are pleasing to God, that even his enemies are at peace with him. In short, what we have in chapter 26 is really a snapshot. I was almost going to say Snapchat. No, snapshot. Snapshot of a believer. So I've titled our lesson, A Snapshot of a Believer's Life. There are many significant events in the life of a Christian. But there is a common theme that runs through the life of every believer. As you see these different glimpses of the life of a believer, uh, you will see a common theme that runs through them. Now this chapter is actually a helpful reminder though the, that though our life as believers is a complex life, it's a complex mix of hills and valleys, that there is one common theme that runs through all of them. And it is this. So I'm not going to keep anything for the end. So I'm going to put all my cards up front. It is this common thing that the Lord is, a, is present in your life and in my life in a very special way. He is there. He is present. So here is a theme statement of the lesson tonight. In the hills and valleys of life, the believer is content and draws comfort from the fact and that his God is with him. In the hills and valleys of life, the believer is content and draws comfort from the fact that her God is with her. You know, our last chapter ended with Jacob deceptively compelling Esau to sell his birthright. And many scholars think that chapter 26 is not really chronological because it does not mention Jacob or Esau at all. In fact, Esau comes almost at the end of chapter 30, 26. And so this may have happened before they were born. But that is unlikely. It's unlikely because of how Abraham is mentioned in this chapter. Abraham is mentioned as though he's no longer on the scene. Now what does that mean? You see, Jacob and Esau were 15 years old when Abraham died. So, so the conclusion is that this story is follow, uh, truly chronologically follows chapter 25. We're going to look at 33 verses today, and the last two verses in this chapter will be covered in the next lesson. But I have divided the 33 verses into three acts with a number of scenes in those acts, bookended by a prologue and an epilogue. And let's, let's get into the chapter as we consider the prologue first. Notice verse 26, uh, chapter 26, verse 1. Now, there was a famine in the land besides the previous famine that had occurred in the days of Abraham. That sets the context for what he's about to share. The text really begins by reminding us the context in which this story takes place. And the context is this, that there was famine in the land. Now, it's interesting to note that because this is only the second time that a famine is mentioned in Genesis. The first time it's mentioned is chapter 12. And so we are told that this famine was different from the famine that had taken place in the days of Abraham. And as soon as you read the word famine, your mind goes back to chapter 12, when there was a famine in the land. 
and it was during the time that Abraham existed, and at that time, Abraham decides to do something. He decides to go down to Egypt. And as you know, Egypt is a picture of the world in the scriptures. And as you think of Abraham's decision, you are now wondering what would Isaac do? And so we, for us as readers, we can anticipate the tension in the story already. What would Isaac do? And that really sets up the act one for us as we see Isaac in Gerar. Notice the end of verse 26. So Isaac went through Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. Let's consider first of all scene one as we think of a believer's life and it is really filled with trials and promises and also obedience. The Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt, stay in the land of which I shall tell you. And like his father, Isaac does not go down to Egypt, he goes to Gerar. And here we are introduced to another individual, Abimelech, who is the king of the Philistines. It's a title, it's like saying the czar or the emperor. And it merely means, the word Abimelech means, my father is king or the king is my father. And it's here that the Lord appears to Isaac. Notice something interesting about verse 2. It's for the first time that we see the Lord communicating with Isaac. Now, there have been a number of instances where we see the Lord communicating with Abraham directly, but this is the first instance where he's communicating with Isaac. And so we want to take notice of what our Lord says to him. Do not go down to Egypt. There's a first, an instruction, a command. Do not go down to Egypt. I want you to stay in the land which I will tell you. I want you to be a, a sojourner. I want you to sojourn in this land. And then notice the number of promises starting in verse 3. First of all, I will be with you. And then I will bless you. I will give these lands to you and to your descendants. I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven. I will give your descendants all these lands. It's a rep repetition of something that he mentioned earlier. I will bless all the nations through your descendants. And notice at the end of verse 4, beginning of verse 5, I will do all of these things because of your father Abraham. What did he do? Well, he obeyed me. He kept my charge. He kept my commandments. He kept my statutes and he kept my laws. As you think of that, those few verses, notice a few things about those verses. First of all, that the promises are a repetition of the promises that God had made to Abraham, both in chapter 12 and then chapter 15 and then chapter 17. In other words, God acknowledges Isaac as the rightful, rightful heir of the promises and all that belonged to his father is something that rightly belongs to Isaac. It's an affirmation of Isaac's position as the promised child of Abraham. Not only that, the promise continues to have three aspects to it. There's the promise of the land, then there's the promise of the descendants, and thirdly, the aspect of spiritual blessings. Isaac, you are still the man through whom that one seed will eventually come, namely the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ 
whose life, death, and resurrection will be the means through which the nations of this world will ultimately be blessed, truly blessed, spiritually blessed. You are still that man, Isaac. And what is the basis of the promise? Notice thirdly, it's because Abraham, your father, obeyed me. He kept my commandments. He kept my charge. He kept my statutes and my laws. And what are all of these things? Uh, those are different words used to describe the law that ultimately came through Moses. It's a description of the law when it was not yet given to his people. And by God's evaluation of Abraham, that's a very interesting thing. God is affirming that Abraham kept the law when as yet the law was not given. So by God's evaluation of Abraham, he kept all of the requirements of the law. Now, how could God give such an evaluation for Abraham? We know Abraham was a weak and a sinful man. At least two times we know that he lied regarding his relationship with his wife. But remember what our Lord says in chapter 15, verse 6, about Abraham? It's because of that that this is his evaluation. And what does he say about Abraham? He believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And at that time, when we were dealing with chapter 15, we understood that, that the righteousness that was transferred to Abraham's account was the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was Christ alone, because it was Christ alone who kept the law in its entirety. Christ's righteousness was credited to Abraham, and Abraham's sin was credited to Christ. But the interesting thing is, what is true of Abraham is also true of you and me as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are credited with Christ's righteousness, and because we are credited with Christ's righteousness, when God sees us, he sees us just like he saw Abraham, as one who has obeyed him, as one who has kept his charge, as one who has kept his commandments, his statutes, and his laws totally and completely. That is a wonderful Thing. Because only such a one has access to the Father and can be in his presence. If you're a follower of Christ here today, this is how God sees you and he sees me. As one who has fully kept the law in the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what is Isaac's response to God's reminder. It is obedience. Notice verse 6. He obeys God's instruction to remain in Gerar. He obeys God. And that brings us to scene number two. A believer's life is marked sometimes as one that displays fear over faith. As sometimes marked with that, a life that is marked sometimes that displays fear over faith. You know, Isaac has obeyed God in remaining in Gerar, but that does not mean that he's not exposed to the circumstances that will test his faith. It's not too long after he has been in Gerar. Notice verse 7. When the men of the place asked about his wife, he said, she is my sister, for he was afraid to say, my wife, thinking the men of the place might kill me on account of Rebekah, for she was beautiful. It's not too long after they have been in Gerar, the men begin to notice Rebecca. She's a beautiful woman. Uh, that she is someone who has accompanied Isaac. 
And so they ask him about her in verse 7. Oh, she's my sister, he says. Now why does he say that? The verse tells us why he says that, because he is afraid. And why is he afraid? He's afraid that the people might kill him once they find out that she's actually his wife. What a timid husband Isaac is. He places his own life about the dignity of his wife. The text tells us that he fears man instead of fearing God. And so in doing that, he repeats the same sin that his father has committed. And so he fails to learn from his father's sin. And what does Isaac do? He places his fear above his faith in God. You know, we are prone to sin. We are tempted to sin when we place man in a position which should only be occupied by God. You know, it's our Lord who says to his disciples, in other words, to you and to me, that we are not to fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. Rather, we are to fear him, that is God, who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. You know, we have to, as we think of the sin patterns in our own life, deal or learn to deal with sin in your own life decisively. There's no place for taming sin. There's no place for negotiation with those things that tempt us to sin. S. Lewis Johnson shares this story that his Sunday school teachers actually shared with him. He says that there was once a hunter who was ready to kill a bear. And so he raised his rifle and suddenly he found this bear talking back to him. Can't we talk over like two sober human beings, the bear said to him. And so the hunter lowered his gun. He said, what's to talk about? What's to talk over? Well, for instance, said the bear, coming a little bit closer, why do you want to shoot me for? Or what do you want to shoot me for? He said, it's simple, I want a fur coat. The bear replied, well, all I want is a good breakfast. I'm sure we can get together and talk about this. And so they sat down to work out an agreement. After a while, the bear got up all, all alone and they had reached a compromise. The bear secured his breakfast and the hunter had his fur coat on. You know, in other words, he ate him. So thank you, Angel. In the, in the warfare between flesh and spirit, he goes on to say, there is no sitting down and negotiating about our sin. No, you have to deal with sin decisively. You can be fairly certain that Abraham has shared about his own trials with his son at some point of time. And after all, they lived together for almost 75 years. And yet we find Isaac not learning from his father's mistakes, from his father's sins. You know, Isaac was there for a long time before Abimelech discovers his lie. Notice verse 8. It says, it came about when he had been there a long time. That to me tells you, that to us tells us, that you, you can imagine how long Isaac lived under a guilty conscience. conscience. Uh, God's word tells us that he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, 
but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. And so one day as the king looked out of his window, perhaps he had an elevated house, he sees Isaac caressing his wife, Rebekah. The word there for caressing or playing has its root also in the word laughter. And so ESV therefore translates this particular word as one who was laughing with Rebekah, his wife. It's really, Hebrew is really an interesting language. Isaac, as you know, means laughter. And so what the Hebrew language is saying is that Isaac was Isaacing with his wife. You know, however we translate this word, what Isaac was doing with Rebekah was something that only husbands and wives do. And so Abimelech pulls Isaac to the side even as he admonishes him in, in verse 9. Notice verse 9. Then Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, certainly she is your wife. How then did you say she is my sister? And Isaac said to him, Because I said I might die on account of her. What a tragic situation. What a tragedy it is when it is unbelievers who point out our sins to us. What a hindrance that is to the gospel. What a misrepresentation it is of our Lord. What a travesty to our testimony. When we sin and remain in sin, it's like we are hurting the very foundation on which we stand. We bring disregard and disrepute to the name of our Lord. We even dishonor his name. Not only this, notice verse 10 and verse 11. By the response that we see from Abimelech, we notice that Isaac has actually misread the Philistines here. Notice verse 10. What is this you've done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. And so Abimelech charged all the people, saying, He who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Isaac was willing to let someone violate Rebekah. He was willing to let someone infringe on the boundaries of marriage. But sadly, it is an unbeliever who understands the boundaries of marriage in this instance. It is Abimelech who understood the sacredness of marriage. Not only that, Abimelech's response, we see that Isaac had no reason to fear. In fact, Abimelech in verse 11 pronounces capital punishment on anyone who dares to even touch Isaac or Rebekah. So something that Isaac as a believer should sought, have sought in the Lord is provided by a human ruler in this instance. And with that, we are told Isaac remains in Gerar. As we move to the next scene, don't just move on quickly as you read these accounts. There is a reason why these accounts are included in the Bible. One of the fascinating things about the scripture is that how truthful and realistic it is. You can trust it. It makes no effort to hide the sins and fears of its heroes. You know that when the Bible says repent and believe in the gospel, it is true and a trustworthy statement. If I'm on my way to hell, I don't want people just acting compassionate and loving towards me. No, I want them to tell me that I'm going to hell if I don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, that's what the Bible is. It is a true statement. It is something that is not only realistic, but it is also accurate in what it shares. And so it presents its heroes as someone who are fearful people, who, who lie sometimes because they fear man. 
Isaac is only one of four patriarchs, and yet his sin is openly laid bare for each one of us so that we would learn from it. That brings us to scene three, as we think of a believer's life as one who is a recipient of blessings and envy. Notice verse 12. Now Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and continued to grow richer until he became very wealthy. In spite of his failure, in spite of bringing disrepute to God's name, the Lord continues to bless Isaac. He sowed in the land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. He continued to become rich and he continued to grow richer until he became very wealthy. And he had possessions of flock and herds and a great household. That means he had a lot of servants at his, uh, for his service. The Lord had indeed blessed Isaac. Now such material prosperity, as you know, is not something that is promised to every believer. But when it does come to a believer, there is no one else to credit except God who has given that to him or to her. And so God continues to shower his grace and his mercy and his steadfast love and his compassion towards Isaac in spite of the weak and passive and even sinful attitude that he displays. But notice quickly also that such blessings from God don't go unnoticed by the neighbors. So not only do we find Isaac as a recipient of God's blessings, but we also find him as a recipient of the envy of the unbelievers. Verse 15. Uh, verse 14. For he had possessions and flocks and herds and great household, so that the Philistines envied him. And what do they do out of that jealousy and envy? Notice verse 15. Now all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father, the Philistines stopped up by filling them with earth. So out of that envy, what these people do, these enemies, they fill up these wells with earth that Abraham had dug. Now when you think of wells, perhaps it might not bring that more to bear on what we think in this culture, but wells in those times were the source of not just water, but of life. And without water, it was impossible to survive in the desert. And so entire societies and cultures sprung up where there was water. And if you owned a well in the desert, you owned the place. And so by filling up the wells with the earth, the Philistines were sending a message to Isaac and his people, a strong message to them, that they are now the owners of these locations. And therefore, it's not surprising to read in verse 16 what Abimelech says to Isaac. He says, go away from us, for you are too powerful for us. That brings us to the end of Act 1, which is Isaac's stay in Gerar. Before we leave, let me mention something about these wells, because we're going to read a lot more about them in the upcoming verses. I found this on an article that was mentioned online, and it says this about the wells. It says, in the hot, dry climate of Israel, wells are all about life. Without them, animals wouldn't thrive and crops wouldn't grow. People would be overwhelmed by thirst and life would become unsustainable. Without water, what you have is a desert. That's all clear and fairly obvious. But what, what wells represent is that they represent much more besides the above. 
to possess a well was to be independent, and they were often inherited from previous generations, so they spoke of the right to live in a given place. A new well, therefore, was a symbol of blessing and establishment. End of quote. That brings us really to Act 2 as we look at scene number 1. And here we find Isaac in the valley of Gerar. Notice the first scene. A believer's life is marked by contention and contentment. Verse 17. And Isaac departed from there and camped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. So from Gerar, he now goes to the valley of Gerar. What does he do? Then Isaac dug again the wells of water which had been dug in the days of his father Abraham. For the Philistines had stopped them after the death of Abraham, and he gave them the same names which his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of flowing water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with the herdsmen of Isaac, saying, The water is ours. And so he named the well Essek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over it too. And so he named it Sitna. He moved away from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he named it Rohobath, for he said, At last the Lord has made room for us, and we will be fruitful in the land. Scene one is contention and contentment. Isaac does not contend with Abimelech. Although Isaac is rich and powerful, he departs from Gerar and moves his tents to the valley of Gerar and settles there. And what does he do? The verses tell us he goes back to digging wells. Not new wells, but the ones that his father had dug and the Philistines had filled them with earth. So he digs them and gives them the same names which his father had given them. Uh, it paints us a picture of continuity of those who have walked faithfully before us. In Isaac's case, it was Abraham. In your case, my case, someone has been faithful and faithfully sharing the gospel with you and with me. So we don't need to dig any new wells. We go back to the wells that have been dug. The Lord continues to bless Isaac, and we notice that when Isaac's servants dig in the valley, they found there a well of flowing water, verse 19. Uh, a well of flowing water is really an expression to say uh, abundant blessings were flowing from the Lord. You know, wells were bodies of water, but they were wells, uh, wells were bodies of still water. When you have a well that has flowing water, it means that the water was fresh, pointing to the fact that the, God, that the Lord has abundantly blessed Isaac. Now, the discovery of Flowing water sources, though, as from Isaac's perspective, is going well, but not from the perspective of the Philistines or the herdsmen of Gerar. Uh, that brings to us our first instance of naming a well. Now, here the herdsmen of Gerar quarrel with the herdsmen of Isaac, we are told, claiming rights to the same well. In verse 20, we are told that they say the water is ours, and so Isaac names the well Essek because it was here that they contended with him. And Essek means contention. Isaac then goes on to dig another well, or rather his herdsmen dig another well, and over this one also they quarrel, and so Isaac names this Sitna, verse 21. And Sitna, the word Sitna means strife. Both the word Sitna, by the way, and the word Satan, which means adversary or accuser, have the roots in the same root word. 
strife. Again, another word, a synonym to the word contention. That really brings us to that third well, which I've described in scene two as someone who's rewarded with rest. He moved away from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over that one, so he named it Rehoboth. We are not given a reason why, but it's enough to know that they did not quarrel over this one. So he names it Rehoboth, which means wide spaces or wide streets. He says, at last the Lord has made room for us, and we will begin to be fruitful in the land again. In other words, after a time of strife and contention, after a time of being on the receiving end of envy and jealousy and quarreling, the Lord has provided him a space the Lord, in other words, has given him some rest. As you look at these different snapshots of a believer, you begin to see that with all of those things that are mentioned on the screen, our life is also marked by similar things. Uh, sometimes it's marked by contention, but there's also contentment knowing who God is. As you read these few accounts of contention and strife, suddenly Isaac's response comes across as something that is very appealing and attractive. There's something very godly and God-honoring about his response. What is that? Well, we can say, first of all, that he pursued peace rather than conflict. He pursued peace rather than conflict. He could have, if he wanted to, fight back. After all, these were wells that his father had dug, and in one sense, they were his. He was the legitimate son of this father, so he could claim that that was a part of his inheritance. He could have fought back on other counts as well. For example, he could have invoked the name of the Lord and said it was God who created everything who has given this land to him. He could have invoked God's name. But he doesn't do that. One commentator writes, if it was Abraham in Isaac's place, War or conflict was not completely out of the picture. If you remember in Genesis 14, he uses his 300 men that were there, 318, and he goes to fight with five kings in that chapter in order to rescue his nephew, Lot. Others have said if it was Jacob, he would have sat down and discussed this with his opponents and made a deal with them. And at the end of the deal, he would not only have had his wells back, but he would also have his enemies' wells with him. That was Jacob. But this is Isaac. He rejects both those options and he pursues peace instead of conflict. You know, there is a time for conflict and there is a time for negotiation. But to discern the next step, it is always right to seek the Lord's will and his wisdom as to what to do. And Isaac chooses to pursue peace instead of conflict. Not only that, Isaac's Isaac comes across as someone who trusts the Lord's provision in the present. He comes across as a very content man. He displays contentment. He is content with the Lord's provision in the present. Isn't it Paul who says, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment? Why? Because we have not brought anything into this world, he says, and we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. And then he goes on to give a warning. Paul does. He says, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. 
Isaac comes across as a very content man. And so when he is pushed from one location to another, he merely packs his bags and moves on as he focuses on having peace with his neighbors rather than conflict. He is content in the Lord, but that doesn't really mean that he sits and does nothing. In fact, he works. He digs the well, as we have just read. Not only does Isaac trust the Lord's provision in the present, Isaac also comes across as one who trusts the Lord's provision in the future. How do we know that? Well, he keeps digging. He keeps digging, knowing that ultimately, if provision comes, it would come from the gracious hands of our great God. He knows exactly what we need and when we need it, and you can be sure from his word that he will provide for you. You know, when the third well is dug and there is no contention, there is an immediate recognition from Isaac that it was the Lord who made room for them. It was the Lord who provided for them. And if we will be fruitful in this land, it would be because the Lord provided that space to be fruitful. Scene number two really brings to conclusion Isaac's time, not only in Gerar, but the valley of Gerar. And that the lessons that the Lord had for him, the things that he needed to learn in that season of his life have been learned. And it's now time for the next season and the next lesson. And what is that? That brings us to Act 3 as we see Isaac in Beersheba, verse 23. Then he went from, up from there to Beersheba. The Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father, Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant, Abraham. And so he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants, notice, dug a well. If we come to scene one of Act 3, a believer's life is characterized by praise and worship. Notice that as soon as he is back, in Beersheba, the Lord appears to him, the verse tells us, the same night. God doesn't delay. He appears to him the same night. And notice the promise again. And the gist of that promise to Isaac is that, Isaac, my promises and my relationship with you does not begin with you, but it began with your father. I am the God of your father, Abraham. I have a record of being faithful and trustworthy, you have no reason to fear. And again, he promises the blessing, notice, of his presence. Someone has noted that after the death of Abraham, this is the only chapter in the scripture where his name comes up more number of times than any other chapter. God continues to invoke the name of Abraham even as he reminds Isaac of his own trustworthiness and his faithfulness in the past. In verse, three, notice, in verse 23, notice what he says. Or rather, verse 3, he says to Isaac, I will be with you. And he was. In Gerar and in the valley, valley of Gerar, protecting him, uh, providing for him, blessing him, giving him strength, helping him. And here, notice in verse 24, the promise of his presence is repeated again. There in verse 3, it was, I will be with you. Here in verse 24, I am with you. 
I will bless you and I will multiply your descendants. I will do all of this for the sake of my servant Abraham. God's promises for the future and God's promises for the present are this, that he is with us. What a great comfort that is for a believer, for a follower of Christ to know that God is not only with you in the present, but God is also with you in the future. And what is Isaac's response to this overwhelming grace and generosity on the Lord's part? It is to fall down before him and worship him. What does he do? Verse 25. He builds an altar there and calls upon the name of the Lord. He worships him. And what is to worship God? To worship God is to give him what is due him. It's a willing, it's a willing submission of all of who we are to all of who he is. Uh, to worship God is to invoke his name, and it is really to bring to memory his character and his attributes. And it is to offer him what he truly deserves. As far as we are concerned, our minds, our bodies, our wills, all of who we are. You know, as sin, sinners, we are totally infected with sin. Therefore, only a total submission in worship makes sense. Notice that Isaac worships God after he builds an altar to God. Verse 25. Now, altar was not just a piece of construction. It was a place where the sacrifice took place. It's a reminder that there is no access to God without first a sacrifice being offered to God. That's what it meant to Isaac. That's what it meant to Abraham and all who followed after him. For you and me, that means we do not have access to God without the sacrifice of his one and only son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's because of and on the basis of that sacrifice that you now have access, that I now have access to this holy God. Isn't it Paul who writes in Ephesians 2:18, for through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. You have access to the very throne of God on the basis of the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We are now a part of his family. I think I, I mentioned it somewhere, I don't recollect where, but in justifying us and in adopting us, God, as it were, moves us from the judge's room or the judgment room to the family room. That brings us to scene two. It's at this stage that Isaac's life, that after he has been back in Beersheba, that his old acquaintance comes back into his life. Thus, I have described as a believer finds himself and finds his enemies at peace. Notice verse 26 to verse 31. Then Abimelech came to him from Gerar with his advisor Ahuzat and Fikol, the commander of his army. And Isaac says to him, why have you come to me since you hate me and have sent me away from you? Isaac is naturally surprised at Abimelech's visit. Why? Because it was Abimelech who had asked him in verse 16 to leave Gerar because he was getting too powerful for them. So if you've asked me to go away, why are you here? Notice the words of Abimelech. We see plainly that the Lord has been with you 
So we said, let there now be an oath between us, even between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you, and have done to you nothing but good, and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. It is obvious to us that your God's hand has been on you. And so they are prepared to make an oath with Isaac. And what are the terms of this covenant? You will do us no harm. You will not hurt us just as we have not touched you. Which is really true. That's what they did do. They did not touch him. They, did not, they made sure that no harm came to Isaac and Rebekah. And have not, done nothing to you but good. Which is not exactly true. Because we didn't see Abimelech intervening when his herdsmen were contending with Isaac's herdsmen. He could have... He could have stopped it if he wanted to, but he didn't. And so it's not exactly true that he has, not, he has done every, everything that is only good. And he says, we have sent you away in peace, which is, which is true. And we recognize now, he says, that you're blessed of the Lord. The Lord has indeed blessed you. Now these are the same unbelievers who initially pointed the sin in Isaac's life. So what a testimony this is coming from an unbeliever now. From, the, from being the man who they called out and called out his sin, this is a huge turnaround. So we have to conclude from this that Isaac indeed has learned his lessons that he needed to learn, that he has changed. And since his learning moment earlier in Gerar, he has now displayed attitudes and actions that show his faith in God. Surely his actions are now pleasing to God. He has made even... As Proverbs tells us in 16 verse 7, he has made even his enemies to be at peace with him. You know, as I was thinking of these qualifications of elders, for example, in 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7, we find a list of qualifications for elders. By the way, what is expected from elders is also expected from all believers in one sense, at least the characteristics or the character qualities and one of the character qualities mentioned in verse 7 is that an elder must have a good testimony before unbelievers. Having one who is above reproach in character. That is the mark of a godly man. And what we see here in Isaac is one who exemplifies this characteristics. He has a good testimony among unbelievers. But why is this important? Why is it important to have a good testimony before unbelievers? Well, let me put it this way. You see, when someone like Isaac opens his mouth to share the gospel, because his testimony is good before unbelievers, he has an audience who would be willing to listen to him. They will be able to say, we want to hear what he has to say because he believes in what he says and he lives what he says. Isn't that true for you and for me? If our colleagues at work find us coming late to work, taking longer trips for lunch when it's supposed to only be one hour, or perhaps taking things from the office that we should not be taking, do you think, do you really think that they would be open to hear from you when you share the gospel with them? Absolutely not. So Isaac has a good testimony among unbelievers. And Isaac on his part then had every right and even the physical might to not really sign this agreement. But he doesn't do that. He chooses not to dwell on how he was treated in the past. He chooses not to invoke that because he recognizes that what they are saying about the Lord is true. 
he's present with him, and it, be, it is because of him that Isaac is truly blessed. And so what does Isaac do? He prepares a meal for them, really giving an indication to them that we are on good terms. I'm willing to sign this covenant with you. And that's exactly what he does. The next day morning, they all arose early, exchanged the oaths, sacrificed animals, and then Isaac sends them away in peace. That brings us to the end of this section as we consider the epilogue for our part, which is verse 32 and 33. And now it came about on the same day that Isaac's servants came in and told him about the well which they had dug and said to him, we have found water. And so he called it Sheba or Shiba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. That dust is not even settled yet when Isaac's servants come to tell him that another well that they had dug and that they, they have dug another well and they have found water. Another indication of the Lord's blessing on Isaac and his family. And this time Isaac names it Sheba, which means both, which refers to the word seven in Hebrew, but it also means oath. And so in this case, it for sure means oath because that, that's what he just came out of, which is a covenant, an agreement, and exchanging of oaths with Abimelech and his men. So in this case, it would mean oath, a well of oath. As you think back of how the chapter began, it's a very dramatic end to how the chapter ends. You see, the chapter began with the famine that drove Isaac to Gerar, and it ends with an abundance of water signifying life. What does famine reflect? It reflects the end of life in many ways if you don't get enough food and water to drink. But what a contrast. It began with a trial in Isaac's life, and it has ended with a blessing. But whether a trial or a blessing, whether comfort or contention, there are lessons that we can draw from this text. And with that, let's conclude our time together. First of all, is the fact that a believer anticipates trials and testings in his or her faith. Or you can say a believer anticipate or should anticipate trials and testing of their walk with the Lord. Isn't it James who writes, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. It's not if you encounter various trials, but when you encounter various trials. Trials are a part of living in this fallen world. And with every trial, with the way that you and I respond to it, we will either become more like Christ, or the Lord would need to continue to work on our life to help us be more like Christ. A believer anticipates trials and testing of his or her faith. But secondly, a believer trusts God's provision in the present and in the future. A believer trusts God's provision in the present and in the future. Isn't it our Lord in the Sermon on the Mount who says, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? For the Gentiles, he says, goes on to say, eagerly seek all of these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things. But you should do what? But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. 
What is the mark of a believer? A believer trusts in God's provision in the present and in the future. And thirdly and finally, I want to remind you of something that I mentioned at the beginning. In the hills and valleys of life, the believer is content and draws comfort from the fact that his God is with him. The believer's life, thirdly, is marked by the special presence of God. We know God is omnipresent. He's present everywhere. But in the life of a believer, there's a special presence of his. And this chapter, that is kind of the invisible thread that is woven through this chapter. How do I know that? Notice verse 3. Sojourn in this land and I will be with you. God's presence promised for the future. Notice verse 24. The Lord appeared to him in the same night and said, I am the God of your father, Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. God's presence promised in the present. And then notice verse 28. And they said, this is Abimelech, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. The Lord's presence marked in a believer's life in the past. The Lord is present in a special way in the life of a believer in the past, in the present, in the future. There's no reason to worry or fear. There's no reason to be anxious about anything. In Jeremiah 23, he says, Am I a God who is near, declares the Lord, and not a God far off? Can a man, man hide himself in hiding places so that I do not see him? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Before our Lord left the earth and he ascended to heaven, he would say to his disciples and all those who were there, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Holy Spirit, in the name of the Son, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The believer's life is marked by God's presence, a special presence of God. I trust you take these lessons to heart even as you reflect on the lesson in your own time. Father, thank you for our time together this evening. Thank you for these wonderful reminders, not only of the fact of your presence, Lord, but also of the fact that you're a God who provides. You know us better than we know ourselves. You know our needs. And even before we conceive of what we need, you already have made provision for that. Lord, help us to anticipate trials in our life, so that we are ready to face them when we do face them, so that they don't take us by surprise, but rather our trust in you and our walk with you will grow stronger because and in and through those trials. I commit the rest of our time here into your hands. Pray that you would be honored and exalted through it all. We ask these things in Christ's precious and worthy name. Amen.